Hello, and welcome to episode 6 of the Daily Zen podcast. My name is Charlie Ambler, the creator of the Daily Zen. And you can find the Daily Zen's home at twitter.com slash daily zen, in case you have discovered this podcast on iTunes. I just asked some questions on Twitter, or just asked you to ask some questions on Twitter, and I got a few responses, and maybe I'll get more while I'm recording. Um... The first one is, how do I stop feeling empty? Which I think is interesting because after a long enough time of meditating, I start to want to feel the experience of feeling emptiness. I don't think there's really a way to avoid feeling emptiness, but the the challenge seems to be figuring out ways to experience it in a neutral way without letting it terrify people and the way that you do that is mostly I think through meditation practice and through confronting it and so you know when you can sit and just absorb nothingness with your eyes closed with no sensory input and just examine your own mind you sort of see this infinite root of everything that is emptiness and the fear of that only comes from a fear of confronting it. People are usually scared of things that they're unfamiliar with. And then as soon as they are familiar with them, they stop being scared of them. So when we meditate, we're sort of just neutrally confronting emptiness and making peace with it and learning how to sit alongside it without it terrifying us. And over time, this becomes comfortable because people tend to get used to situations once they're familiar. And so all it takes is just exposing yourself to emptiness and realizing that there's nothing to fear. Um, Feeling empty only comes from not recognizing that um, it's okay to feel empty. And I think those feelings only persist when we start to think they're bad. And sometimes we feel empty because the root of everything is emptiness. Um, you know, dark light comes out of darkness. Um, everything sort of is rooted in this depthless foundation. I mean, even science and mathematics and all of these things are built on shaky foundations. And they can help us navigate the material world. But as far as the things that we can't know and that we can't understand, we have to sort of just accept the fact that there isn't a lot of external work we can do to try to figure those things out. And emptiness is one of those things, and so that's why in doing the internal work of meditation, we start to sort of uncover a bit more of it each time, and it becomes less scary as we go. There's a Zen saying that meditation is like uh, brooming the dust off the floor of a room each day. And so if you do it each day, the room, you know, seems normal and you don't really recognize anything wrong. But if you let it go for a while, you have all this dust and it obscures what a Zen master would call your true nature. And so... 
the fear of feeling empty or the fear of emptiness itself is sort of this fear of the true nature because all of our true natures are just emptiness. You know, there, there are truths and, and values and morals and everything in the external world, but as soon as we get rid of the perceiving mind, all there is is sort of this neutral, infinite emptiness. And it's, it would be a shame to, you know, be scared of something that you can't really get rid of and you can't change because it's so much bigger than you. And so the challenge, I think, is less to try to stop feeling empty because that'll only make it worse and more to figure out ways to make it an influential part of our lives in a beneficial way. And not let it take us over. I think a lot of people feel empty and then they start to think that life has no meaning and what they do doesn't matter and the truth is wholly subjective and all of these things. A lot of that just comes from being too comfortable with feeling comfortable and not being comfortable enough with being uncomfortable and not being comfortable enough with the unknown, with the void, whatever you want to call it. Because when we're not comfortable with that which is the foundation of everything which is much bigger than the things we are comfortable with because we're usually only comfortable with things that we're capable of controlling we have a really hard time when when things go wrong or when bad things happen to good people or we're treated poorly and or we recognize injustice in the world you know these things weigh on people as a like a ball and chain because they don't know how to recognize them for what they are, which is just their own interpretations. So, I figure it makes sense to be short on a question about emptiness, so I'll leave that one there. I think something that this feeds into, which I was debating whether or not to discuss on the podcast, but I think I've decided to because everyone, a lot of people who are attracted to this sort of philosophy seem to also be held back by this stuff is someone who says, as a topic suggestion, capitalism and global compassion, a Buddhist critique of violent social structure, inter inferring with, I don't know what that means, maybe interfering with alleviating suffering. And then the person says, I'm having trouble finding Buddhist radical critiques of hegemony and a social philosophy. It's usually about psychology and epistemology. Um... So I dealt with a lot of this stuff in college, and I think it's this phenomenon that started in the 60s where white liberals who enjoy these uh, sort of, a lot of these key words and buzzwords and stuff discovered Buddhism and sort of started to fetishize it as something that was culturally not like them, uh, the way that a lot of those types of people tend to fetishize everything that's not theirs. Um, and as a result, there's this weird belief that there's something political or, um, radical about Buddhism or about Zen specifically. The irony being that the people who are talking always about things like radicalism, uh, hegemony, social conflict, social justice, all of these things, the people who talk about those things are usually only talking about them and you often find that in real life they tend to be a mess because they're so 
obsessed with these concepts that these concepts start to color their interactions with people, uh, their view of where they live, their view of who they associate with, who they fall in love with, what they buy, what they drink, what they talk about, you know. And this is the very opposite of what we are trying to achieve with um, meditation and with, you know, any sort of Buddhist mindset outside of the highly doctrinal religious ones, which these people wouldn't be interested in anyway because they require them to shed their, their beliefs about things. The purpose of Zen, if there is a purpose, is to shed concepts and to get rid of the thinking mind in a controlled way each day through direct practice in order to realize that concepts and conceptual thought are what hold us back. And so the lesson here is that there isn't any sort of radical Buddhist critique of social structures because that defeats the entire point. The way to help the world is to be a good person in the day-to-day -day and to divorce yourself from these attachments to concepts and to things and um, to people, you know, to the desire to be affirmed for your beliefs, to ideology, to all these things. People who are attached to these things, who walk around with protest signs and put masks on themselves and deface things and fight with people for no reason on the internet, because they think that they're doing something good for society, are really only doing something good for their own interpretation of right and wrong, which is wholly subjective and um, purely theoretical. And so I found my sort of need to, um, to constantly be obsessed with what's right and what's virtuous and what's just has sort of dissipated with more meditation practice because I sort of just focus on making the most out of what I can do in a day-to-day -day basis to be kind to my family and my friends and um, to not create unnecessary conflict, to not cling to these concepts too much and to try to see the world for what it is rather than what my ideas that I acquire through others and through books and things try to tell me that it is. And if you study the history of Zen, um, and of meditation in general, the practice of meditation emerged out of a disillusion with the conceptual world and the material world. Um, concepts are a lot like material objects in that we acquire them, either through our own realization or through experiences of other of others, usually the two are intertwined too much for us to recognize what the real source is. But they are not our essence because they're capable of changing. Um, the same way people flip-flop on their political views, they flip-flop on their religious views, they flip-flop on their what they think love is and all these things. This is proof that these concepts are fragile and they're temporary and they're not real. And so... Religion is, when it's practiced in a way that really enlightens the spirit and brings depth to life, it's anti-conceptual. And it's a little bit anti-intellectual if you're willing to be open-minded about it, in the sense that it relies on direct experience and intuition and understanding who you truly are and what your honest and unchangeable experience of the world is. And a lot of people never uncover that because they're so bogged down by these concepts of 
what usually start with the very simple concepts of right and wrong, which come from culture and from just being a human, because some of those are, uh, are absolute, and then quickly devolve, especially today with all of the cultural influences and media and internet, and the way that people use social interaction to signal to one another how virtuous they are, this sort of what starts with a, a good intention to be good devolves into this obsession with concepts that prevents us from being good to one another, divides us from one another, and, and also prevents us from contributing real value to the world. Uh, I think there's an important distinction between contributing um, theoretical, conceptual value to the world and real, tangible, experiential value which comes from learning to understand others, making connections with others, giving back to others in a direct way, not just by sit telling people that you care, all of these things, um, by being kind and compassionate and following what in the Buddhist scriptures are, you know, the Noble Eightfold Path and all of these things. Not following them on an institutional level or by signaling or doing whatever else modern quote-unquote forward-thinking people like to pretend to do to feel good about themselves, but by actually being a virtuous person and um, examining the self enough to realize the limitations of conceptual thought. Um, I know that's not the answer a lot of people want to hear, especially because I know a lot of liberal-thinking type people are attracted to the sort of stuff that I've been doing for a long time, but I've made a point to distance myself from any of those interpretations because I think they're divisive and I think that I see a lot of people who obsess over them so much that they're not good to people around them and that they end up living in a in a world that's so theoretical that they can't experience real life in a in an honest way or learn to make real life work for them in an honest way. And that's a crucial other part of the teaching is um, when we meditate we're learning you learn who you really are, not in order to, you know, be more good or more just or whatever, but in order to know yourself and make peace with yourself. And it may be difficult to find what you find because society tells you to be a lot of different ways at a lot of different times. And it's not always possible to change yourself to fit some sort of mold. And so once you can make peace with who you are and examine who you are, you can start to uncover the truth of the world through that perspective, which is your perspective. And that's, in my opinion, when people are capable of doing the most good because they're realizing themselves before they try to pretend that they know what's good for the world. And I think that's just so crucial, like, especially now, because I see so many people who are, who have difficulty and trouble in their lives and are undeveloped spiritually and they think it's because of all of these terrible things in the world and they start to make themselves feel like a victim and identify with other victims and pretty soon you just have these droves of people all over the world who feel like they're the victim of everyone else and retreat unto themselves and are unwilling to to try to be active or do anything real in the world. And so that's why you find a lot of these people on the internet and stuff like that. So I think it's important to remember 
that life is not all about concepts. It's not about politics. It's not about religion. It's not about Buddhism at all. None of it's about any of that. It's about direct experience of reality and compassion and mindfulness and honesty, directness, work, self-discipline, solidarity, peace. All of these things come from an examination of the self, a sober, honest examination of the self. Not a feel-good, this is how I wish the world was, you know, utopian projection of what you wish you were and what you wish society was because the more you live in this world of ideas, the more impossible it becomes to function properly in the world of the real. And so spirituality asks us to confront what's difficult and what's often unfortunately true, which is that the world is an unjust place. It's an unfair place. It's full of suffering and hardship and terror and terrible things. And none of that is ever going to go away. And the only way to make it any better is to divorce ourselves from concepts that lead us to cling to the false in order at, at the expense of the real. Um, because we can't deny reality. And reality is often unpleasant and difficult, and there's nothing we can do to change that. We can try, but it's the, like trying to get rid of death, you know? The same way that these techie guys and science people are trying to end death. It's like, what's the, you know, what's the point of that? It's so silly. It's putting a Band-Aid on a bullet wound, basically, because if humankind isn't spiritually satisfied, no amount of conceptual or material achievement or understanding or unity will make them feel any better. And I ask people who are so interested in these concepts that they think they need to find some sort of Buddhist understanding of social whatever uh, to to step back and, and ask themselves, why am I labeling myself a Buddhist? Why am I labeling myself a social radical? Why am I labeling myself an anti-capitalist? Why am I labeling myself a philosopher? Because as soon as you label yourself all these things, you start to slowly dig a hole for yourself. It becomes a grave over time. That's my theory, at least. I mean, I've been meditating and practicing this stuff for 10 years, and I've never once thought to call myself a Buddhist, because, like, who, who cares, you know? What's the point of doing that? Um, and there's so many people who are obsessed with that. Like, you go on their, on their Twitter page or whatever, <laughs> you talk to them and they're like, I'm a vegan and I'm an activist and I'm a Buddhist and I'm this and I'm that. It's like, why do you need to label yourself with all of these limited ideas? As soon as you do that, you're, you know, you're dehumanizing yourself and turning yourself into this product. So just try to be what you are and if you are that, you, there's no need to label yourself and you will develop relationships with others that are contingent on your true nature rather than contingent on one another recognizing the different labels you give yourselves. That was a long answer, but that one is, uh, <laughs> that one is close to home and has been something I've been mulling over for a while. So thanks for waiting that one out with me. Someone suggested the topic of tolerance, which I think is basically the same thing I was just saying. The way to be tolerant is to stop pretending that you are, that you can only associate with people who think like you 
and who act like you, and everyone falls victim to this. But a lot of the problems that we have with other people come not from who they fundamentally are and what our fundamental differences are, because those differences should be celebrated. They come from the belief that those differences are worse than, you know, that, that there's some sort of discrepancy in them. And that causes people to, um, to group together and to fight and to quarrel for no reason and to obsess with ideas. And, you know, you got to be, if you're, if you're gonna, it's like Voltaire said, you know, I, I detest what you say, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. And if you're a free thinking person, you have to accept the person who's saying something that's not free thinking that you don't like. Um, otherwise you're not free thinker. Sorry. You know, and, uh, if you like many of the great stories of the Zen canon of um, you know, a thief walks into the cave of a master and um, the master gives him a handful of gold and the thief says, what the hell are you doing? I'm a thief, I'm stealing this. And he goes, no, I'm giving it to you as a gift. And then the thief runs away and then comes back, you know, <laughs> in the story later crying and wants to become his disciple. If you can approach these ideological conflicts with that approach of um, not condescending others but truly wanting to understand where they're coming from, you will find a new and more enlightened perspective. I guarantee you. If one of you hardcore liberals goes over to some Nazi that you're protesting at another protest that they're doing and talks to them, I guarantee both of you will learn something. And that's an act of compassion that no one doesn't benefit from. There's no harm that can be done in that. The harm comes from distancing yourself from others and pretending that you're in violent conflict without ever actually... Um, having a neutral confrontation precisely because that distances you from the real and keeps you in this bubble of ideological certainty. Um, so talk to people who you don't like, talk to people who you disagree with, talk to people who you agree with. Um, live your life honestly and without trying to be liked by everyone all the time and you'll find a way to, um, to understand things that you previously just had completely been closed to. And that's all we can hope for, you know, in a free society. If you don't want to be in a free society, you know, don't be surprised when it doesn't work the way you want it to, because everyone has the ability to do what they want, and that's what we have to accept among one another, no matter who we are or what we believe. Um... see if we got any new ones while I was ranting and raving. Someone said um, anxiety, and that's another thing I'd actually like to, to tackle because that's been a controversial, this is a controversial episode for um, certain people, I imagine. Anxiety is another topic that has been controversial in my experience of this stuff. Um, when I uh, talked about meditation and anxiety, a lot of people were just shocked that I could speak so candidly about anxiety because I think a lot of people only see anxiety as a DSM certified psychiatric disorder and don't realize that it's something that everyone experiences at some point. Um, some people experience it fairly regularly without ever, you know, most people never saw a doctor about it until about 150 years ago, if that, because it was just considered a, a feeling that, that we had. But the modern world made um, 
it a lot more common because things started moving more quickly and at an unnatural pace and uh, humans need calmness, they need stillness and they need reflection. Um, I'm going to, you know, make the unpopular argument that a lot of what we perceive as unavoidable anxiety, um, the same way a lot of what we perceive as unavoidable depression or sadness or any of these other negative feelings, and that's what they are feelings. Uh, they're emotional states, and sometimes they're chemical, but a lot of times they're purely psychosomatic, and we create them for ourselves. And we create them um, due to what I was talking about earlier, which is what I, um, why I transitioned into this topic. When, when we cling too much to, when we live too much in the head, um, we slowly make ourselves into um, beings that are in conflict with experience, with reality. Um, and so when people have difficult experiences or they feel alienated or anything early in life, this begins this pattern where their reaction to reality because of what's going on in their head, um, which is often a response to physical reality or something, but it starts in the head, turns into this negative feedback loop that's really difficult to get out of, and it produces this, you know, the fear and trembling, a lot of which comes from the freedom too, like as Kierkegaard and all these existentialists said, um, a lot of it comes from, from the freedom of being able to choose the way we live our lives. And the more freedom we have to live our lives, the more potential we have for anxiety because every choice we make precludes us from making a gazillion other choices. And if we think too much conceptually about all this craziness that's going on in the real world, if we internalize it too much, it gives us this terror and this horrible anxiety because we are taking what is real and trying to perceive it in in conceptual terms um, when it can't be perceived that way. And so we overcomplicate things, we stay too much in our heads, um, we mistreat our bodies and our minds, and we wonder why we're, you know, suddenly um, disordered in some way. Um, there's people who have, obviously, real capital A anxiety, which is a condition. Um, again, it didn't become a medical condition until fairly recently. Um, but no matter what the distinction is, um, it's important to be uh, to, not to be too sensitive with ourselves, but to shy away from that belief and to move towards this belief that if we can learn how to endure a feeling in the in the moment in reality instead of internalizing it so much in our heads, um, we learn that it passes and. Um, that helps us overcome it. And the crucial thing here is that when we meditate, we learn that everything passes good and bad. When we get anxious, it often comes as a result of some sort of fear or attachment or idea or something that we can let go of. And if we're able to train the muscle in the brain that lets go of it before it occurs, it won't occur and it won't snowball into this chaotic, neurotic life that a lot of people end up living. And so again, the solution, in my experience, and as someone who suffered with uh, general anxiety for pretty much my whole life, when meditating, um, you're letting go of, you're kind of like 
turning the temperature up so the snowball melts instead of assisting it by pushing it down the hill and letting it grow bigger and bigger and bigger until it's too big and it goes out of control, you know. Um, a lot of the ways that we try to deal with anxiety are like putting, you know, throwing water onto a giant house fire. Um, when the solution is to is to step back and let it, you know, just kind of let it go and um, let go of, quote-unquote, the house, which is external to us and isn't actually important. Like, if we can let go of our attachment to the result of any sort of experience or concept or relationship or anything and try to be present and fully aware of it, the fear of losing it and the fear of things being unexpected and difficult in life goes away and that significantly reduces anxiety and that's sort of the influence that meditation has on anxiety uh in addition to that meditation and i can look up the proper literature on this but i've read it especially when i was studying formally um at the i studied a little bit at the david lynch center in uh, new york city to expand my the types of meditation i was practicing it's not zen but it's a different the, the TM, Transcendental Meditation. And they've done a lot of scientific research on um, the actual neurological effect of meditation on the brain. Um, and in many people, it's more effective than, and lasts longer than um, a lot of the most common psychiatric and um, pharmaceutical methods that are prescribed to fix it. Because it's fixing it from the inside out. Um, the same way that you prevent yourself having a heart attack by exercising and not eating terribly. You're fixing your, you're, you're making your heart more healthy from the inside out. Um, instead of taking, you know, continuing to eat cheeseburgers and not exercising and, you know, taking drugs. Um, when you meditate, you build the sort of mental strength that allows you to over time rise above the little opportunities that, um, these bad emotions take to take advantage of you and get the better of you and it helps a lot and anyone who has severe anxiety who has practiced meditation for um, some sort of period of time will tell you that across the board um, sometimes it gets worse before it gets better which also terrifies a lot of people especially people who are prone to anxiety um, but that's just part of um, this confrontation that has to occur with the self in order to overcome all of these projections and external realities we try to put on the world. And once we can overcome those, there's really, it opens up a whole new sort of understanding of reality and what's possible. Um, not just in the sense, like productive sense of what we can do in life, but like how we can experience it in a more fulfilling and positive way because the only reason we do any of the things we do is to you know get the most out of life to begin with and so if you find these you know the, the missing link is this spirituality that allows us to have a multi-layered experience instead of only seeing um, individual experiences through a certain point of view at that time whether it's an ideo ideological view or an emotional view or whatever um, the more you can come into contact with that emptiness that we discussed earlier and make peace with it, the less it terrifies you, the less anxiety reality gives you. 
the less you cling to concepts, the less you obsess with, you know, politics and religion and whatever else it is and just are able to live in the actual real life moment. Um, so I'll let you go to do that right now because <laughs> this has been longer than I usually do. But uh, thanks for listening. If you enjoy the subject matter discussed on this podcast, I implore you to follow me on Twitter, twitter.com slash dailyzen, and to, you know, share this with your friends if you feel so inclined, um, or keep it to yourself if you, if you want to. We're on iTunes. If you just search for Daily Zen Podcast, you can subscribe there. And then uh, if you really like what you hear, you can support the podcast by purchasing my book, which is available in a link on my Twitter profile and on Amazon if you just search Daily Zen. So, yeah, until next week, thank you for listening. I'll probably actually, I'll probably do two episodes this week, realistically. So I'll talk to you soon. Bye.